And if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. I wonder, are you a resilient person? Do Do you find it easy or difficult to keep your poise during the trials of life? Are you easily upended by adversity? Are you easily sent into a tailspin when life puts the pressure on you? That's an important question. I was thinking about that this week. I was reading an article in the New Yorker that was relating the, 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 the study and scholarship of a man called Norman Grimizi. And Norman Grimizi was a, is a developmental psychologist. He's since become succumbed to Alzheimer's disease, but he spent 40 years studying um, the lives of children who grew up in extremely adverse situations, broken homes, developmental pathology, the whole nine yards. And um, his, his attention was drawn to the, the minority of boys and girls in that situation who, who developed what he called the, the character trait of resilience. One boy in particular of all the thousands he saw st- stuck out with him and was epitomized resilience. He was nine years old, had an alcoholic mother and an absent father. Each day he would arrive at school with the exact same sandwich, two slices of bread with nothing in between whatsoever. There was just no other food at home except the bread and no one to make him a different lunch. And yet every day when he came to school, this boy made sure that no one would feel pity for him, and no one would think his mother inept. Each day without fail, he would walk into school with a big smile on his face and a bread sandwich tucked away in his bag. And Norman Grimizi looked at this lad and other boys like him and saw that they were different. They had this resilience and it inspired uh, Norman Grimizi to be the first psychologist to actually study resilience. Where does resilience come from? What character traits produce it in a person's life? And there are several, as you might imagine, but one in particular, he said, is this inner um, locus of control. And what he meant by that is this, this mindset that I will not be the plaything of my circumstances— that I will not let my circumstances dictate who I am and what I become as a person. I'm, I'm going to make my responses to my circumstances uh, dictate who I am. Even this little lad who came to school with his bread sandwich, he was determined people wouldn't think his mother was bad. So many boys would go, or girls would go, oh, it's not fair, my mom just make me a nice sandwich, and it would all be, feel sorry for me. But this boy came and took responsibility and that sense of an internal locus of control. Even more behind that, Grimizi said, one of the central elements of a resilient character lies in the determination to choose how you view your circumstances. He says a traumatic experience only becomes traumatic in that it only traumatizes you if you label it as a traumatizing experience. And so, Grimizi actually, when he looked at adverse circumstances, he doesn't call them in his research traumatic circumstances, but potentially traumatic circumstances, because the person who experiences them 
gets to decide how they will receive those circumstances and whether or not they will be traumatized by them as viewing, viewing them as traumatizing. So, do you view your trials as trauma or as a challenge? A trauma to crush you or a challenge to rise and to meet, to learn from, and to grow through. And people who are resilient do that. They view adverse circumstances not as a, a crushing burden, but as a challenge to grow and to thrive in. It's like if you think about it, if you're a cross-country runner, some of you do cross-country, and there's a hill in the, uh, uh, the race, how will you run if you approach that hill thinking, oh, it's not fair. Why does the designer of this course put a hill here? I mean, here, I'm tired, near the end of the race. I don't want to run up a hill. Is that going to encourage you to run up that hill? No. But if you view that hill as, okay, here's a challenge. I'm with a group of guys or girls, and we're all tired, but this is a hill when I can thin out the herd and improve my chances of winning. You're going to approach that hill with a very different mindset. And it's that mindset, Norm says, Norman says, is the essence of resilience viewing adversity as a challenge to meet and not a kind of a, a burden to be crushed under. Are you easily crushed? Do you, do you find your circumstances easily produce thoughts like, why is this happening to me? I'm so unlucky. You shouldn't be speaking of luck at all in a Presbyterian church, but I am so unlucky. This is so unfair. Nobody else has these burdens. My life is so hard, and you kind of, you, you, kind of, you know, you're sinking um, beneath it. Nothing I can do. I feel like a piece of laundry tossed about in a washing machine. Or, or, or do, you, do you rise and think, how can I respond to this circumstance? For what can I be grateful for in this moment, in this difficulty? We were struck that week speaking to Brian Laurie on the phone. It just really struck me, his, his joy, his, his sense of service, going to work. Here's a man battling pancreatic cancer, and every time I, I call him to encourage him, he ends up encouraging me. Um, this sense of duty, pressing on, what can I do today? It was just it was really encouraging. And and that's not, if you're struggling under life, that doesn't mean you can't come and, you know, seek pastoral help. But it was just really, it rebuked me because I don't meet the small challenges of life with that spirit. And here's a man in the fight of his life meeting with hope and expectation, uh, which was a tremendous witness to me. So this morning in our sermon, I want to ask you a different question, not just resilience per se, but... I want to call this sermon Building Gospel Resiliency, okay? Building Gospel Resiliency. How can you develop gospel resilience? Deeper than just being able to make your way through life with a pluck and plucky and courageous spirit, but can you develop gospel resilience? And that's actually what we'll see this morning in this passage. So we read this, this passage in a second. Remember, Paul is up against it. He's chained between two Roman soldiers. And I want you to think that and feel that. They're with him day and night. He can't wash himself in the morning without being chained to these soldiers. He can't go to the restroom without being chained to these, these soldiers. He has zero privacy. If you're an introvert here this morning, he has no me time, none. 
no place to go and recharge himself. He's stuck with these two smelly, sweaty soldiers who their armor has been ruled hard and hung up wet. Hey, they're just they're sweaty and horrible. They're with them everywhere. And they're, they're rough, ready pagans. They curse their foul language. Your, your, your wrists have been rubbed raw by the shackles. When you sleep at nighttime, the chains clank. When you turn over, you don't get a good night's sleep ever. I mean, walk a mile in Paul's shoes for a second here. He's in prison. Also, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die whether he'll be released and go out and face more persecutions, more difficulties, more dangers, more shipwrecks, more everything in the gospel, or will he be taken out to the Austrian way and summarily executed with a basically blunt sword lopping off his head at dawn, which is how Romans were executed. That's not, a, not top of my ways that I want to go out being executed. But Paul doesn't know. He's not trapped on the horns of a, tele- of a dilemma. He's trapped in the horns of uncertainty. He doesn't know what's going. That's awful, being stuck. What's going to happen? I don't know. It's, it's hard, right? And to make matters worse, back in the churches of Philippi, even though they're doing basically fairly well, there's a bunch of self-centered charlatans muscling in on Paul's act. Paul's been budged off in He's off stage in prison, and these guys are coming in, and they're actually intending to hurt Paul. They're intending to hurt him. That's that's hard. I've been in ministry before where guys have stabbed me in the back, and it gives me great joy here because I I, I trust my associates and my my elders and my staff. They would never, they wouldn't even enter their mind to do that. I feel I'm in a safe place to minister, but I've been stabbed in the back by people in the past, and it's a very, very painful situation, and Paul is being stabbed in the back. As you read this passage with me this morning, you'll hear the words of a man who knows true and deep gospel resilience. How can you be like him? Are you like him? Do you want to be like him? Let's see if we can learn a lesson from Paul's shoes here this morning, or Paul's soul. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. How can you, how can I develop gospel resilience? Well, there are four things. First of all, you've got to focus. Keep your focus right. Keep your head on straight. It's how you meet the trials. It's your mindset that matters. First of all, focus on the providence of God. Paul will say, I'm in prison because God has put me there, number one. Number two, keep your focus on the progress of the gospel. We often measure our lives by how well things are going for us, our 401k or whatever, our political um, party, our sports teams, whether they win or whether they don't. We, 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 we measure our life by that. Paul says, measure your life by the progress of the gospel. Thirdly, the purpose of our lives, which is whether we live, whether we die, that Christ will be glorified in our bodies. And fourthly, the presence of our Savior. For me to live as Christ and to die is more Christ, Paul says. Let's work through those together this morning. First of all, the providence of God. Keep your focus on the providence of God. Grimizzi and the psychologists speak about an internal locus of control, that you've got to feel in some sense you are in control of your life's direction. And that's a half-truth at best. None of us are really in control. But we are in more control than we like to admit. You're not the plaything of circumstances. Life may be discouraging, but you don't have to let it make you discouraged. We often, we too often allow our feelings to be self-justifying. I feel overwhelmed. Well, that, that's, that's, that's good. But there are two more questions. Are you right to feel overwhelmed? And are you expressing that sense of being overwhelmed correctly? Just like anger. Are you right to be angry? And are you expressing your anger the right way? Are you right to be frustrated? And are you expressing that sense of frustration the right way? And people with internal locus of control, they determine to respond properly. But Paul actually wants you to have an external locus of control, that somewhere someone is in control of every detail of your life. And that someone is Christ. Paul says, speaking of the two groups who are preaching, one out of envy and rivalry, but the others from goodwill in verse 15. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the, des- for the defense of the gospel. The defense, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Elsewhere in Colossians and in Ephesians, Paul calls himself the prisoner, not of Rome, not of Caesar, not of circumstance, but the prisoner of Christ, he says. That's, that's you will never, ever have true gospel resilience unless you learn to trace all of the second and third causes of your life back to the good hand of God, your heavenly Father. You'll never know if you can't say with Josh Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the 
essential habit of mind for somebody who has gospel resilience. You've got to be well-versed in what the fathers called the providence of God, providere in the Latin, to see to it beforehand. God has seen to all of the details of your life beforehand, the sunshine and the shadow, the good days and the bad days, the things you do well, even the things you do badly, your mistakes, even your sins. God handles your sins sinlessly so that while your sin is your sin, still the Bible can say from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things find their origin from God and lead back to God, not that He causes sin, but He does allow it. He permits it, governing it, surrounding its emergence into this world like a scientist carrying a a virus in gloved hands, preserving, keeping it safe, only allowing it to go where it wants to go. No, No unforeseen leaks from some lab in heaven where God goes, oops, didn't mean that to happen. No, God holds all of the details of our lives in His hands. Paul says, I have been put here, not by Caesar, but by God. And the, and the circumstances, what has happened to me, has really served. I mean, you could say they've served to keep you down, Paul. They've served to keep you out of your ministry and your calling to hold you back. But Paul says, no, I see how the unseen hand of God has caused what happened to me to really serve to advance the gospel. More about that in a moment. Do you believe, do you look at life through the lens of providence? What Ursinus and the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, and Ursinus was 26 years of age when he wrote these words. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Almighty. It's everywhere present, and it's fatherly. Not the cold, blind, indifferent hand of fate, but the fatherly hand of God. And how you perceive your events. And too much of the time, we see the small things and the big things as coming by chance and not designed by our Father's See the events of your life as written, a novel written by the hand of God. And resist the urge of saying, if I were God, I would do things differently. Maybe. But thanks God, you're not God, and He is. As one of the Puritans said, when I was a young man, I thought if I had God's power, there are many things in my life I would change. But now that I'm old, if I also had His wisdom, I would leave everything just as it is. And one of the chief causes of us feeling overwhelmed by the stress of life is we simply forget the hand of God that put us in the situations we find unpleasant, overwhelming, exhausting, or frustrating. 
we need to learn to rest in the arms of our Heavenly Father and to say, our Father knows best. Secondly, then, keep your focus on the providence of God. Keep your focus on the progress of the gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How do you judge the significance of your life and the success of your life? Most of us judge it by how much pain do I feel? How much pleasure do I have? How much food am I eating? How much drink am I getting? How much sex am I having? How much money am I earning? Right? And we judge our lives by those standards. And those standards aren't unimportant. But they're not the ultimate standards. Now, what would you think of, you know, a soldier on D-Day on one of those Higgins boats going into the shore? And the, the ramp's about to go down, he goes, the Wi-Fi in this boat is terrible. I, I, I can't get my Netflix. I want, to, I want to, you know, binge watch the next season of who knows what. I, I know Wi-Fi wasn't existed yet, didn't exist just yet. But, you know, he's, 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 taking, he's totally forgetting the fact that he's, he, there are bigger fish to fry. He's about to go onto the beach and fight in the battle of his life. Well, this world, there are much bigger things afoot than just your and my 401k, or how much laundry is piling up in your, in your laundry room, ladies, right? I know that can be overwhelming, right? But the, the bigger fish is the progress of the gospel, King Jesus. How much is He having of our hearts? How much is He having of our homes, our children, our husband, our marriage, our neighborhood? Being concerned about these things, these are the things that gripped Paul's mind. He could have easily thought about Justice and, and um, Rufus, these two Roman soldiers, smelly brutes they were, and, and, you know, how bad their B.O. was. He wished they, maybe they used more deodorant, I don't know. But he could have, been, could, could, could have, could have, could have taken the raw, his raw wrists personally. It's their fault. They're keeping me back from going where I want to go and doing what I want. They're holding me back from my ministry. He could have had all those thoughts, but those thoughts have helped him or, or hindered him when it come, came to witnessing to those men. But I can see Paul in my mind's eye sharing Christ with these men, asking about their wives, their children, their homeland, where they're from, and getting into their hearts. And these men going back to their barracks and speaking in the imperial guard, the navy seals of the Roman Empire. I, I met this prisoner. It was really unusual. Like every prisoner we know, they curse us, they hit us, they bite at us, they scratch us. We've got to keep them away with our swords. This guy was talking to us about this Savior who came into this world, the Son of God Himself, who lived the life we ought to have lived, who died the death we ought to have died, and who rose again on the third day. And it wasn't just one or two of them, it was spreading. This gospel message was going like wildfire through the whole Praetorian Guard because of the way Paul endured this hardship. And it wasn't just the progress of the gospel in the world that fired Paul's interest. It was the progress of the gospel in the church. He said, most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How did Paul's… You'd expect Paul's imprisonment to make them less confident. We don't want that to happen to us kind of thing, you know. But rather than making them less confident to speak a word for Christ, they're more confident. Why? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is because of the way Paul endured hardship. He let the church know, I'm not the loser. The gospel is what I'm concerned about, and the gospel is proclaiming going going forward that we cannot lose for winning because Christ is going forward. But Paul, these guys are muscling in on your act. But Paul, he's so caught up with the gospel, he doesn't care these guys are preaching to hurt him because all that matters to Paul is they're preaching Christ. Even for the wrong motives, they're preaching Christ, and Christ is being proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, Paul says, and yes, I will rejoice. I am rejoicing, and he's resolving to keep on rejoicing. Why? Because Paul has lost a sense of himself, and he sees only the only thing that matters is Christ is going forward. And Paul's attitude is of tremendous encouragement to the church. Now, I was writing this this morning, and it really convicted me. I mean, it really convicted me. Your attitude, the way you respond to life, teaches your children to look on life a certain way, to look on adversity a certain way, hardship a certain way, trials a certain way. The way you respond to people people who sin against you, teaches your children how to respond to them a certain way, to people who sin against them a certain way. We teach a theology by the way we respond to life, and it, it, I just, it was overwhelming to think about that in the many ways I've fallen short of that myself. When you think of the little girl when the Syrians did one of their raids on on the Promised Land, and they captured this little girl from her home and took her off, and she, by God's providence, remember, became um, the slave of Naaman the Syrian. And when Naaman became leprous, she was concerned for Naaman, was concerned that, that he be healed from his leprosy. What kind of a home do you think she grew up in? Do you think she grew up in a home where her parents thought of people as obstacles getting what, stopping me get what I want, or people to be criticized because they're not as good as they should be, or people are a burden or a blessing? It's like that wonderful quote from um, John Newton, when I hear a knock at my study door, I hear an interruption of my morning plan. No. I hear a message from God. It may be a lesson of instruction, perhaps a lesson of patience, usually a lesson of patience, patience, but but since it is His message, it must be interesting. Now, if I lived that out more, not just in my study, but at my home, I think my kids might have a different perspective on life, and maybe yours would too. Because how we handle suffering 
doesn't just reveal our theology, it teaches theology to everyone who watches us. And if we want to raise poised children who handle life well, we have to become poised parents who handle life well. How do you do that? You keep your focus on the providence of God, and every circumstance comes from the Almighty fatherly hand of God. You keep your focus on what really matters, the progress of the gospel. How is the, how is the gospel going forward? You keep your focus on the purpose of your life. What's the purpose of your life? To get more money, have more pleasure, get more free time, or to glorify God in your body? As Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out, this proclamation of Christ will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death." That's convicting. Paul says, whether I live or whether I die at the hands of a Roman soldier, that Christ will be glorified. I mean, think about it. The nearest thing, could you imagine being kidnapped by Islamic fundamentalists? You go and make, you go on, you know, vacation to Morocco, which you don't want to do, by the way. But anyway, you go to vacation to Morocco, and there you get kidnapped and you're held in some God-forsaken place for God, God knows how long, and at the end of that time, you, you know there's a very real chance that you're going to be beheaded with a blunt butter knife, which, if you're fortunate, might be serrated. And, and, and can you say this? That with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by the blunt butter knife. All that matters is that I glorify Christ. That's, that needs to be our purpose, the providence of God, the progress of the gospel, and the purpose of my life, that, that my, I will use my life up to glorify God. And too often, brothers, that's not my, my purpose is, how can I get 10 minutes to myself at the end of the day? How can I get some peace? How can I read the newspaper? You know, whatever, you know, we, we need to keep, our, keep the main thing the main thing. Life is not about us. And too often we're robbed of peace and poise because we think life is about us. No, life's about glorifying God in the humdrum drudgery of daily office work or um, home housework, the piles of laundry, the cleaning, the picking up the kids from soccer games and tennis games, whatever other kind of games they're playing, you know, homeschooling your children, picking them up from school, running back, just, just, to, just in those moments of life that Christ might be glorified. We've got to keep our mind there. If, you've, if, if you're running a cross-country race 
and you're thinking of going out for a nice gentle jog in the woods, you're in for a rough surprise, right? You're not there to have a nice gentle jog in the woods. You're there to run, and in such a way as to win the prize, rain, hail, or storm. It's your mindset. Life's about glorifying God. Until you realize that, you'll never be able to escape the voice inside you going, but I want my life, I want different, and I want more in my life, and I want I want it, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a pity party. And the problem is when we think like that, and I think like that sometimes too, there's too many eyes in the sentence. It's like a political speech. You know, how many eyes can you count? An awful lot of them. That's the problem. No, we need less of me, as Jim always is praying in our session meeting, and more of Christ. How do you get there? Well, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, which means, which is the fulfillment of my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be glorified in my body. Where does Paul get the mind? This mindset doesn't come by nature. It comes through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the order is amazing. If I was saying, I'd be saying, this will come through the Spirit of Jesus and your prayers. Because we tend to discount the significance of prayer. But Paul looks out at the church and says, I need your prayers to keep this mindset, to keep this perspective, to run the race to the end. Where does the strength come? Uh, Eric Little says in the movie, Charge of Fire, worst bit in the movie, where does the strength come to run the race to the end? You're going, yes, go, tap, tap, tap. He goes, it comes from within. And I'm going, no, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. It comes from above. It comes from through the prayers of the people of God and the help of the Spirit of God. Without those things, we can do nothing. Pray for me. Pray for your elders. Pray for um, Kyle. Pray for <laughs> your staff. Chris, my brain's crossing again. Pray for your husband. Pray for your wife. Pray for your children. These things don't come by nature. They come as God gifts them to us through prayer. Oh, God, help my wife. Help my children. Help my husband. Have, keep their mindset. It's about the glory of God. So you're driving home at the end of a long day, and you want a, a, you want a, you want a quiet, easy evening by yourself and for yourself. No, it's completely the wrong mindset. How can I glorify God in my family? And Lord, help me to remember that. Your purpose. And then lastly, keep your focus on the presence, the presence of Christ. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, but that is far better.
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What do you want out of life? What do you want? And Paul goes, that's interesting. I don't know. (laughs) Do I want to live on in this world, or do I want the blunt butter knife? I don't know. And you think, you're joking me, Paul. Oh, he's not joking. He really doesn't know. (laughs) Do I want to get beheaded in the Austrian way, or do I want to stay on here and keep preaching the gospel? And he says, "Mm, I can't tell. Why? Well, he said, if I had my druthers, I'd choose the blunt butter knife. Why? Because for me to live is Christ and to die is more of Christ. But yet I know I must remain on here for a while yet and minister and serve. That's an incredible perspective. And you'll never know it if all you want out of life is life. Life as you define it. Life for yourself. And if that's your If that's your mindset, young people, enjoy it while you can, young lad, young lady, because it's slipping through your fingers. And once it's gone, it's gone forever, and you'll be left in eternity with no life and no light and no God and no hope because you have no Christ. What do you want out of life? There's no more important question for you or me to consider this morning. But Paul says, what I want out of life is not life. What I want out of life is Christ, the Son of God. I want to see Him. I want to know Him. I want to proclaim Him. I want to make Him known as far as the sun shines. And if you can't if your soul doesn't in some sense resonate with that, if the, if the pilot light in your soul doesn't even, just doesn't glow a little bit brighter when I say that to you, it's because there's no light in your soul at all. Now, many of us can say, I can remember a day when I, I knew more of that than I know now. That's good. And I, and I know enough to know that I want more of Christ. But some of you here, you, you, you think, and that sounds like hell on earth. I'm telling you, no, it's the very sum and substance of heaven itself, the presence of Christ. What's it say of your soul if heaven sounds like hell? You're dead. You're dark. And you should be despairing. If heaven sounds like hell, you're in a bad spot. Because unless that mindset changes, if the angels were here, they'd say, oh, come, listen to us, young lad, young lady, and I'll teach you, I'll speak of one who's fairest among 10,000, the bright morning star, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He speaks, it is done. His head and his hair are white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire. That when he looks at you, he sees into the very depths of your being, and yet it makes you want to run to him, not run from him. His feet are like burnished bronze, 
and his face like the sun shining in its strength, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And when I find him, I find my all. He's so high you can't get above him, and yet so humble he's willing to come down and put his hand on lepers and prostitutes and to welcome them into his kingdom. He's the orphan's wildest dream. And if you see no loveliness in our Jesus, the angels would say, it tells us much more about you than it does about him. And being in his presence is life itself. And when he came, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. What, 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 you, 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 be, you be your own judge. What should God do to creatures he made, he fashioned in his image, he, he created with the ability to know pleasure here and forevermore in his presence? What should God do with a young lad or a young lady or an old man or an old woman who say, being in God's presence holds no delight or attraction for me at all? What should God do? Especially when he sent his own son to hell to buy himself the right to bring blackguards like you and me to heaven and to walk away from him and say, no, Life means everything to me but Christ, and Christ means nothing to me. But what God should say and what God does say this morning are two very different things. God says to people with that attitude, people like the way I used to be and even the way that I am some mornings, He comes and says, oh, come to me. Let me set you inside out and upside down and back to front, which is right way up, and help you see things as they ought to be seen in light of eternity, in light of the glory of God. If the pleasures God created on earth can be so good, how much better the God who fashioned them and you to enjoy them? You know, Paul says, the secret to being poised in life and being resilient Focus on the providence of God. Your life is not an accident, and you aren't the plaything of circumstance. Focus on the progress of the gospel. How's the gospel doing in your heart and life, in your family's heart and life, in the world? That's the real question. Focus on your purpose of life, that I am here to glorify God and to enjoy Him, and focus on the presence of Christ. Life means Christ to me, and, more, and, and death means more of Christ to me, so I can't lose for winning no matter what happens to me. That's the secret mindset of the few and rare jewel of Christian contentment and Christian resilience, keeping the main thing, the main thing in your heart and mind as you make your way through life. Like almost everything else in the Christian life, it's a battle of perspective that we win in here or we lose everywhere. Let's pray together. Father,
pray this morning, O Lord, that You would speak to us and help me, help the people, O God, to be more resilient in the way we think. If we don't think a way we've never thought before, we'll never live a way we've never lived before. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.